0: I pray that you're well as we wrap up our 4th of July weekend. As we continue our study here through the book of Hosea, we're getting towards the end. And if you turn to chapter 11, we're going to cover two chapters tonight, chapters 11 and 12. But there's an incredibly important principle that's outlined really in these next two chapters. And it's hard for us to understand because contained within these chapters is a picture of God's love, and his discipline. And because of where we live in our day and time, and and very specifically here in our Western culture in America, we have kind of turned into this, this nation that now refuses to discipline anyone for any reason, and we just basically put everybody on a timeout. If somebody does something, we we no longer give them any type of chastening. And and I know that's not universally true, but in a general sense, when you talk to people, it's like we have an aversion to discipline. We almost think that if you discipline someone, well, that's being too harsh or, or that's not appropriate. And yet the Bible very clearly and very specifically says to us, that God is both love and that if he loves us, then he will chasten us. And so in chapter 10, we saw the children of Israel pictured in this relationship between Hosea and his wife Gomer, this man who does the unthinkable and marries this woman who's an avowed prostitute, who not only doesn't keep her marriage vows, but goes right out and does exactly what she was doing before Hosea married her, was absolutely unfaithful, we see that you have a choice whether you plant good things and get good fruit out of them, or whether you plant bad things. You plant cactus and then suffer through the thorns. God desires for us to plant good things. And if we continue to plant cactus though we will get the, the the reaping of those things that we plant that are thorny, God will also come along on top of that, not just the thorns themselves, but God will actually chasten. He will go so far as to not just punish, but to chasten those whom he loves. And so would you join me? We'll pray, and we're going to take both chapter 11 and 12 tonight as we continue here through this incredible book, the book of Hosea. Father, we thank you. Lord, I thank you for those times when these impossibly contradictory things have gone on in my own life. You've been faithful to chasten me when I've been out of bounds, when I've been out of the lane, when I've been off track, when I've been going the wrong way. You have loved me enough to chasten me. And I pray tonight if there's anyone that's flirting with those things, they're uh, planting those seeds of thorny things, those cactus plants in your rose garden. Lord, I pray that they turn from that. And I pray that, God, as we read your word and study it, that you would instruct us from heaven on how we ought to live our lives so that we don't need to be chastened, so that your character in that exactly what First John says we know is true, you are love, and so Your your first move is always in that love. But Lord, because you love us, you'll also correct us in love. You'll spank us in love if necessary. And so we give you tonight, pray that you'd speak to your church. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. As we begin this particular passage, as we look at what Hosea is going to say, I think there's some background that would be helpful the book of Deuteronomy, in Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verse 5, says you should know in your heart, speaking to the children of Israel. Remember, the book of Deuteronomy is kind of Moses' farewell address. He's basically saying, look, there's the stuff that we learned. Here's what happened in the wilderness. Here's what we recorded in the book of Exodus and how it worked out. We went into the wilderness and then into Canaan, and you gave us the law, and you gave us the tabernacle, and all these things. But in chapter 8, Eight, it says in verse 5, you should know in your heart that as a man chastens his son, so the Lord chastens you. So the Old Testament is clear. As a man chastens his son, so the Lord chastens us. When you move to the New Testament, to the book of Hebrews in chapter 12, beginning in verse 5, it says, have you forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as sons? Again, turning to Deuteronomy, My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when the Lord, uh, by him you are rebuked. For the Lord loves those whom he chastens and scourges every son that he receives. For if you endure that chastening, God deals with you as sons. For what son is there that a father does not chasten? And so in the New Testament, repeating the same exact moral clarity, that you find in the Old Testament that God absolutely will chasten us, even though he deeply loves us, you find that in the New Testament as well. You see, sometimes people think that because we're saved by grace and because we walk by faith and not by sight, and because the Lord forgives our sin, because we can have complete forgiveness of those sins, 1 John 1.9 is absolutely clear that if we ask, God will forgive and cleanse us we kind of get to the place to where when we think on that, it's like, well, God's just not going to spank us anymore. He's not going to chasten us anymore. We're we're so free in God's grace, we can do whatever we want, and we'll be unchastened as we go through life. Now you turn your attention to Hosea's case. How could Hosea's very unfaithful wife, Gomer, ever question that Hosea actually loved her? It it seems almost impossible. Didn't he demonstrate that as he seeks her out? Didn't he do that? He paid the price to set her free. How how could there be any question? And so Israel, being this, this picture of who Gomer is in this particular story, in other words, Gomer is Israel, it's even you and I tonight, and, and the husband, Hosea, is a picture of the Lord. Well, what happens? Does Gomer get a free pass? You know, God is merciful, and God is loving, and God is kind, but God also chastens those whom he loves. There is a price that we pay, and there is brokenness that comes into our lives. There is a spanking waiting in the wings, and we see that in several different ways in these next two chapters. In chapter 11, it begins by God's love that was demonstrated in the past. Because if we understand, as we rightly should, uh, Moses in his farewell address uses the word remember 14 times. So in the book of Deuteronomy, he calls on the children of Israel, think back, remember, look at where you were, look at what happened, how these things went down. And so remembering is a beautiful way for us to avoid things in the future. If we don't learn from them, as Edmund Burke said, then we're destined or doomed to repeat them. And so because that correct understanding of God's dealing in the past is, is so beneficial, we should take how God dealt in the past and we should apply it in our present time. We can apply it to the future. Why? Because the book of Hebrews in chapter 13, and verse 8, says that Jesus Christ, the Lord, is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He doesn't change. So his character in the past is his character in the present, and it will be his character in the future. And if he chastened the children of Israel, even though those were his chosen people, how much more can we pretty much guarantee ourselves that as God's kids by grace through faith, that he's going to spank us if we need a spanking? He's going to give us what we have earned in that sense of that principle there in Galatians 6, which reminds us we're going to reap what we sow. If we plant cactus, we're going to get thorns. And so, in verses one and two, we find this in chapter eleven, the book of Hosea. When Israel was a child, here it is: I loved him. So again, Gomer the picture of Israel; Hosea the picture of the Lord. Hosea could be the Lord always, and will be always the Lord. And you can also picture Gomer as you and I, but children by grace, though not exactly the same, very close. We're adopted. And out of Egypt, I called my son. Egypt is a type of the world. Out of the world, we have been called. As God's kids by grace, we've been called out of the world. We've been called to abandon the old life and put on the new life. To, To not walk as we used to walk. We're not supposed to be planting cactus in that sense. And as they called them, So they went forth from them. They sacrificed to the Baals and burned incense to the carved images. Now, notice this. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. So here's this picture of a loving son that the father's done everything he possibly can for that son. And the son immediately, after being called out of that bondage, goes back to doing maybe even what was worse, then got them put into bondage the first time. Now, I don't know about your house, but I I grew up as a child of the 50s, and we still believed, parents still believed, in a good old-fashioned spanking. But a spanking was not the first option. There was still a talking to. There was still what we would call today a timeout. There was still a removal of the good things. There was uh, no more snacks after school. There was all of those things, but a good old-fashioned spanking was in view. It was reserved for, very specifically, rebellion. Now, notice what's being said here. Called them out of bondage. I saved them. I separated them out, if you will, so that they went from them. But they sacrificed to the balls and burned incense to the car. They went right back to it. You see, in my house, in our house, if you ever really wanted to get a spanking, the best way to do it is to keep doing the same thing over and over again. The first time, you might get a talking to. The second time, you might have your snacks removed. The third time, you could pretty much count on the belt coming off. God still uses the belt. God still gives a good old-fashioned, this is going to hurt spanking. God sent Joseph ahead into Egypt. You can see this picture in the book of Genesis towards the end in chapter 50. And in fact, all the things that happened in Joseph's life there in Genesis 50, verse 20, it says, those things were meant for evil, but God intended them for good. In other words, when he was sold into slavery, not good, God intended it for good. When when the children of Israel suffered during the famine and had to go and beg Joseph for food, the the circumstances weren't good, but God used it for good. God was allowing chastening. From that humble beginning, the children of Israel, as Moses led the nation out of Egypt, even though they had great triumph, great power during that time there in Exodus chapters 12 through 15 or so, when you look at the history there, Hosea is kind of picturing how God demonstrated his love even at the time of the Exodus. Both Israel of old and we, by God's grace, God frees us. But God has a real aversion to us having been freed and then going right back to the bondage that he freed us from. He gets upset by that. He's not okay with it. And so as God the Father sees Israel as the Son, so as God the Father sees his children by grace as the Son, the daughters of God, after all these things, you can kind of count on, if you don't want God's love, if you won't take his freedom from bondage, and you want to go back to bondage, then what he's going to do is show you how much he loves you by how much you get whooped. By the spanking that you're going to get. Because as Hebrews says, if God doesn't spank you, then he doesn't love you. You aren't even his kid. I remember, and we had to chastise our children very, very little. And I don't attribute that so much to great parenting as I do just the grace of God. But there were times when our boys were, you know, it's like, no, you can't do that. This is not going to be good for you. The great thing is when they learn that lesson, they stop doing those things, then you can return back to the love relationship. That's where every parent wants to dwell. No parent wakes up in the morning goes, man, I can't wait to beat my kids. No, a parent wakes like, up in the morning and I go. I hope my children understand how much I love them and they'll obey the house rules and they'll go to school and they'll do their homework and all the things that children are supposed to be doing. They're instructed by the parent. And when they do those things, the parents are going, that's my son, that's my daughter. But when they're out doing the things they're not supposed to do, I don't even want to associate. I would prefer that people didn't know that you were my child and furthermore cell phone goes away the car goes away the allowance goes away everything goes away and the hope is that you'll learn that lesson and you will repent from those things and so then god can restore that relationship and get back to the love part that's what he wants a second way we see God's love demonstrated in what happened in the wilderness. Verse 3, chapter 11. I taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by their arms. But they did not know that I had healed them. I drew them with gentle cords, with bands of love. And I was to them as those who take the yoke from their neck, and I stooped and fed them. You see, when the children of Israel entered into the wilderness, they, they came from bondage, 400 years of slavery in Egypt. God sets them free. There's the plagues and all the things, you know. Moses is going, Who shall I send? And as I said this morning, he, tell them I am sent you. And God at the first Passover delivers them the blood's on the doorposts, the lentils. The angel of death passes over. The children of Israel cross over the Red Sea. They're now walking in the wilderness. And what's the first thing they do when they get there? They start to disobey God. God has delivered them from bondage. They were literally in slavery. They were toiling by the sweat of their brow, making bricks for Pharaoh, and they are now completely free in the wilderness. But they don't trust God. They begin to grumble, they begin to complain, they begin to look back towards Egypt and you, know, you can kind of see them there on the Gulf of Aqaba looking over the, it's like, whoa, right over there. Now oh, We had onions in our soup, we had pots of meat. What do we got out here? Desert sun, they didn't appreciate the Lord. And so the Lord in the wilderness says, don't you guys even recognize that while you were in the wilderness, not one of you died from exposure. I fed you. I took you to water. I made sure you made it all the way through the wilderness if you travel with us on one of our tours to Israel and we go down to Elot and then cross over into Jordan, you're looking at the land that the children of Israel would have traversed. It is desolate land. Nobody's surviving out there without somebody taking care of them. Only the Nabataeans were, were able to even survive, and they did so by mapping out the water sources, the oasis. They were in that region, it's still desolate to this day. And, And yet somehow the children of Israel actually started to thrive there and they get to Kadesh Barnea and they look into the promised land and they're still in unbelief. They're still, oh man, there's giants. We're like grasshoppers to them. And were it not for Joshua and Caleb, nobody would have entered in. They take 10 spies and they go, oh, let's go check it out. They come back and say, let's take this land. The children of Israel needed a good old-fashioned weapon, so what happens? Most of them die in the wilderness. They never enter the promise. They don't get to that sweet spot that God had for them. But God was demonstrating his love towards them. Israel mistreated God, and God still saved a remnant of the population. Our human nature hasn't changed much. In the intervening four millennia or so since that time, Hosea basically is going to tell us that the people were determined to turn from God, to turn from Hosea, just as Gomer was. Gomer had been paid for. She'd been brought out of that lifestyle. She didn't have to do that anymore. She was completely, right back she went. Isaiah chapter 1, as we began that book, Alas, a sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, a brood of evildoers, children who are corruptors. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 4 says. You you see, this this whole picture of, of God setting people free, guiding them to their inheritance, is seemingly always met with, well, you know might be better back in the world. God doesn't like this. And so he chastens. He he takes his love and he puts alongside of it his hand of correction. And praise God for this next uh, several verses, next three verses, verses five to seven. Because God again demonstrates his love, the love side of it, by how long-suffering he is. Anybody else glad that God's long-suffering with you? I am, because I'm a knucklehead. I, I, I'm I'm one of those guys, I, I learn the hard way almost all the time. I don't know what I can't do until I try to do it, and I can't do it, and I get hurt trying. That's the way it works. I'm not actually proud of that. I'm just simply saying a lot of us are wired that way and we got to keep bumping our heads against the wall until there is a giant knot in the middle of our forehead until we realize it won't move. Then we go, well, God, could you show me a way to go around this instead of trying to go through it? Verse five, we shall not return to the land of Egypt, but the Assyrian shall be his king because they refuse to repent. Notice. You want. Here's the recipe for a spanking. You're not going to go back to your old ways. I love you too much. I'm going to send a new thing to deal with your life because you refuse to turn around. Real simple. And the sword shall slash in his cities and devour his districts and consume them because of his own counsels. My people are bent on backsliding from me. You're going to have a t-shirt made up that, bent on backsliding. You, you could hand them out at the church. You're going to have a lot of people that should pick up that shirt. It's like, man, I, I know that I'm not supposed to do this, but I'm going to do it anyway. And though they call on the Most High, none at all exalt him. In other words, they know what to do. They know what they should do. They know which direction they should go, but they're bent on backsliding because they get counsel from people who don't love the Lord. So there's such a problem in the church because I talk to people all the time. You know, well, well how did you get that? Well, I talked to my friends. I talked to my parents. And then you ask, do your parents know that? Well, no, my parents don't know the Lord, but you know, they're smart. Well, that's true, but if you're looking for godly counsel, you probably want to go to someone who's going to give you godly counsel instead of someone who's going to give you the flesh. But because you like the flesh, because you love darkness, just as J- Jesus said, because you want to have people tell you what you would like them to, what you would like to hear, then what ultimately happens is you go get counsel from somebody who will tell you what you want to hear. That's how you backslide. That's how you go backwards. That's how you get your own counsel. You get the counsel of yourself by finding someone who will agree with you. The children of Israel did that. And the crazy part of it is they did this. They understood it. They knew that they weren't doing what God wanted them to do. They knew that they were simply getting someone to agree with them. And so they suffered completely from that malady. You see... God's love in the past is demonstrated in the fact that when you look at what God's, God does, he, he, he simply says, look, I, I already showed you these things. You need to remember what I've already showed everyone. This is my character. This is my nature. I haven't changed Don't go back to the bondage. Don't go back to the wilderness. And remember, I only suffer long for so long. But I'm not missing what you're doing. You still need to turn around. We continue with a couple more examples of this. Verse 8, as we continue. God's faithfulness to his promises. Check this out. Verse 8. How can I give you up, Ephraim? So, this is the 10 northern tribes. How can I hand you over, Israel? That would be still the 10 northern tribes. How can I make you like Atma? How how can I make you like Zebulun? How can I set you up like them? My heart churns within me, my sympathy is stirred. I won't execute the fierceness of my anger. In other words, I won't go all the way to where I could go. Here's the crazy thing. God created us. If he wanted to destroy us, he would destroy us. But he doesn't want to destroy us. He wants us to love him, and he loves us deeply. And so he's not going to use the fierceness of his anger. In other words, the totality of his anger. God's mad at the situation, but he still loves the person. And so he was... He restrains his anger. What he could do, he doesn't do, but he does enough so that we get the understanding that's the wrong direction. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for for I am God, not man. That's a need-to-know thing for all of us. God's not like us. He's not motivated by righteousness one day and unrighteousness the next. He doesn't change. His moral character is completely, totally unchanged. What he did not approve of in the Old Testament, he still doesn't approve of. What he approved of as the direction for his people in the Old Testament, he still approves of the same things in the New Testament. The way we relate now by grace through faith is different than the law, to be sure. But God himself is unchanged. So he says, I I, I won't because I am God, not man. I am the Holy One in your you're midst, and I will not come with terror. Can I give you a little clue? God hated, hated kicking Adam and Eve out of the garden. He hated it. He actually made the garden for them. But because of their rebellion, he says, no, you can't stay here. You need to learn this lesson because you need to choose whom you're going to serve. So, I want you to do this volitionally. I want you to actually choose because I love you. I want you to love me volitionally. So he said, I'm going to let you have circumstances that are very negative. You're going to have to Adam work by the sweat of your brow. You're going to toil in the sun. Eve, childbearing is going to be painful. It wouldn't have been so if you'd have been obedient in the garden, but you weren't. So in order that you learn that lesson, so you don't stay on that path, I'm going to give you a path that's even harder. Painful. God always works this way. If we won't take the easy way, he'll make the hard way so hard that you'll get the message. He absolutely has demonstrated this love by his faithfulness to his promises, and chief among them are the difficult things that we see, especially in the Old Testament. You see, according to the law of Moses, there in Deuteronomy chapter 21, if you were a rebellious son, you were actually supposed to be stoned to death. But God says, no, I'm not going to do that. That's the actual penalty, but I'm going to withhold that. And so I'm going to love you through this time. And he would, of course, show us this in his own son, Jesus. Jesus would die in our place. But perhaps one of the the best ways that we can understand the way God does this, the way he has always done this, is through his sparing of the righteous. And this begins really in, in earnest where we can see it very clearly in the story of Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis chapter 18 and 19. When you read that story, and for sake of time, you can read it later. Both chapters, chapter eighteen, from about verse sixteen all the way through the end of chapter nineteen. But if you read it, you, you see this situation that happens, and you know, let's just let's just call it what it is. It was not in ho- in hospitality. The the men of the city wanted to to rape these two angels that had come into uh, into Abraham's tent, into his home. And so Abraham is is crying out. and He's like, the men turned away, and they went towards Sodom. And then you see, Abraham begins to talk to the Lord. He says, would you destroy the righteous with the wicked? He takes the most general statement in chapter 18. uh, There in verse 23, he says, Lord, you're not going to destroy the wicked with the righteous, are you? And God responds. He says, no, 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 that's not who I am. And he goes, well, if there's 50 righteous, would you also destroy the place and not spare the 50? And God says, no, I'll spare the 50 righteous. But there weren't 50 righteous. And it goes on and it just incrementally gets worse and worse and worse. The example, if there are 45, God says, well, I won't destroy the 45. If there are 30, well, I won't destroy the 30. If there are 20, well, I won't destroy the 20. What if there's 10? If there's 10 people in Sodom, I'll I'll save the 10 righteous people. This is God's character of love. He always spares the righteous, always, 100% of the time. Now, it doesn't mean the righteous don't go through trial or difficulty, but ultimately, God always spares the righteous. And the reason this is so important is by the time you get to chapter 19 and this incidence happens where you have this, they're not supposed to be in Sodom at all, And Abraham and Lot are there. And the men of the city of Sodom come out, both young and old, from every quarter and surround the house. We know there's two guys in there. Bring them out so we can rape them. God was being loving in the fact that he spared the righteous. But he was also being loving in the fact that he wiped everybody else out. Because that perversion would have filtered through the entirety of what would become the Jewish people. And so Abraham leaves and he stands before the Lord. He looks towards Sodom and Gomorrah, towards the cities of the plain, and he sees the smoke and and this thing where God has destroyed the city, and he had to say, praise God, that he destroy? Praise God that he didn't destroy me. Praise God I've been spared. Praise God. God is God. He's not a man. He can't lie. He made a promise and he kept his promise. God said, I won't destroy the righteous and he saved the righteous even though he obliterated Sodom and Gomorrah. And so the picture is, what right did Israel even have to ask God to spare them? The light had shown Abraham had set this incredible example. It's like, I'm going to build an altar. This is where we're going to be. We're going to be God's people. Israel's possession of the land and its blessings were completely based on the covenant of Abraham. But the enjoyment of those blessings were completely dependent on them being obedient. And so God's still the same God. He makes promises. Sometimes those promises have conditions. There's the if and the then proposition. If you will do this, then I will do that. God will save the righteous always. That part was unconditional. But the conditions for Israel to enjoy the promised land had to be met. And if you don't meet them, you won't enjoy the blessings. And so for us as believers, children by grace through faith, we have to remember, if you want to enjoy your relationship with God, you have to be obedient to God's word. You've got to be obedient. God may preserve you. But you will also get disciplined because he's preserving you. You'll get a spanking because he loves you. A fifth thing, God demonstrates this hope, this, this love, because of the way he restores in the future. In verse 10, it goes on to say, in chapter 11, for they shall walk after the Lord. He will roar like a lion. When, when he roars, his son shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like a bird from Egypt, like a dove from the land of Assyria. I'll let them dwell in their houses, says the Lord Ephraim, has encircled me with lies, the house of Israel with deceit. But Judah still walks with God, even though the Holy One who is faithful is with them. God's saying, look, I'm not going to change. I'm asking you to change, and if you change, I'll restore you. I'll take care of you. I have to roar like a lion. There's a beautiful scene in Lion the Witch in the Wardrobe. Oh, no, he's not a tame lion. That not a tame lion, and neither is the lion of the tribe of Judah. He roars occasionally. He's fully capable of consuming you. But because he loves you, he doesn't eat you. (laughs) He chastens you instead. He doesn't destroy you, he loves on you. And because God is merciful always, and in the past he proved that, God's saying, look, I'm giving you the hope of future, future restoration, but please don't make it so that you barely get to that restoration. Just walk with me all of your days. Don't be like a trembling bird from Egypt. Don't be like a dove out of Assyria. Don't don't try and lie your way into the kingdom. I will be good to you, so please be good to me. That's why Jesus said, how often, there in Matthew 23, how often I wanted to gather you together as children. Just like a, a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you wanted to keep skittering around all over Jerusalem. You wanted to run everywhere you wanted to go. You wanted to do your own thing. You wanted to get out from underneath my wings. You wanted to go where the coyotes could pick you off. You you wouldn't. You refused to come to me. How did this work out in the present? That's what chapter 12 actually presents to us. Just as Hebrews 12, 6 says, for the Lord whom he loves he chastens and scourges every son that he receives. You see, God doesn't chasten us just simply as a judge inflicting punishment on a criminal. He's not just upholding the law. He's being a loving parent. And so in this present moment when God chastens us, when he corrects us, when he allows bad things to happen to us, when he puts us into situations where our character is is being tested, being built, it's being worked on. You you see, God's actually showing his love. You see, because punishment itself has to do with the law, has to do with justice. But chastening has to do with love, and it has to do with redemption and relationship. God wants us to understand his love, the redemption, and the relationship. But he will take it all the way to that place where it feels like we're being punished because that need for discipline is placed upon us in a way that's measured by God. And he measures it with his love. Notice verse 1 here in chapter 12. For Ephraim feeds on the wind, pursues the east wind. He daily increases in lies and desolation and also makes a covenant with the Assyrians And oil is carried to Egypt. He says, look, you're giving away all of your best stuff to the enemy. You you keep chasing after the wind, the whirlwind. You're you're, you're doing exactly what you shouldn't do. You're feeding on these things. That word feed means to graze. It's like you have an opportunity to be anywhere in the pasture. You, you, You could be in this part. You could be down by the water where the grass is thick. You could go to that place. But you choose to go where the weeds are. You, you choose to go where the poison oak is. You, you choose to eat the stinging nettles. Now, it seems to us to be almost ridiculous that God's people would do that. But it shows you the hardness in a general sense of mankind's heart. We, we have to all be aware of this because we are prone towards ending up in that spot to where it's like, nah, this isn't going to work out real well, and we should know that because we're worshiping idols, which are nothing, we're turning to away from God and towards empty substitutes, we're feeding on the wind, we're depending on the protection of the world instead of turning to God, we're doing all these things, and so we should expect the emptiness of that kind of chase, but instead we're going, oh, you know, this is going to work out. I'll keep following after the Baals. It'll be okay. I'll keep going after, you know, this false way of living that God says I shouldn't do. But, you know, that just means these other people haven't done it as good as I do. You know, their their lies and deception are not, you know, mine are just really good. I'm good at this. And that's exactly what happened to the children of Israel. They became really good at being disobedient. And so God had to turn from that gentle correction, that that subtle movement of saying, you know, let's not go this way. Why don't you go over here? This will be better for you. To, okay, now I'm going to give you a good solid whack in the forehead with a two by four. Maybe that'll get your attention. Perhaps if you're knocked out, you're laying unconscious, you can't sin anymore. Maybe you'll wake up and go, nah, I'm not going to do that anymore. And so we see an example of this discipline in verses 2 through 6. So the Lord brings charge against Judah. So this is the southern kingdom. And will punish Jacob according to his ways. Jacob being a picture of all 12 tribes. He birthed the entire nation according to his ways. According to his deeds, he will recompense him. In other words, whatever you do, whatever you sow, that you'll also reap he took his brother by the heel in the womb. Jacob's name means heel catcher or deceiver. And his strength, in that strength, he struggled with God. Yes, he struggled with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought favor. But where did he find him? He found him at Bethel, the house of the Lord. It wasn't until he went to Bethel. It wasn't until he abandoned his struggle. It wasn't until he gave up. It wasn't until he was wounded. It wasn't until he was crushed and walked with a limp his entire rest of his life. It was not until he finally gave up and said, you know what? I got the message. I'm not wrestling with God anymore. I'm not going to try and tell him what I should do with my life. I'm going to let him govern me. That's what Israel actually, actually means, governed by God. That's when he got that name change from heel catcher to Israel. It was more than symbolic. It's like, I was over here being a heel catcher. I was being a deceiver. I was being a liar. And I got the message. This out of joint hip, this problem is going to be with me the rest of my life, this limp that I'm going to have until I go home to be with God, this is a reminder that I'm not going to live like that anymore. That was chastening. And there he spoke to us. Word, God, speak in God's house. Why we're doing what we're doing right now. Not that this is the only way that you can hear from God, but this is a really good way because we're studying chapter and verse through the entirety of the Bible. That is the Lord God of hosts. The Lord is his memorable name. It's a memorable name. That's how we're supposed to remember God, Lord, Yahweh Adonai, God who is the Lord, the master. That's the name we're supposed to remember. And so you, by the help of your God, return. Observe mercy and justice. And wait on your God continually. You see, the Jewish people reached this place to where they thought they could kind of live their life however they pleased. They had forgotten those examples of discipline. They'd failed to remember these events in Jacob's life as he struggled with his brother. Remember, he struggled from the womb. He and Esau were duking it out inside a mama. Like, ah, I'm getting out. no I'm getting out first and so he grabs he Esau's heels like no I'm keeping you from getting out 1st I'm going and so he had to have a spiritual new beginning and maybe some of you tonight need a spiritual new beginning maybe you need to abandon some of those things that you've taken up in your life. Maybe you need to quit being who you are right now because who you are right now is not remembering who God is. You see, very often that's the problem. We fail to remember who God is. We stop having a fear of the Lord. We stop remembering that he's holy and just and righteous. We stop remembering that he chastens those whom he loves. And if he doesn't chasten us, then he doesn't love us. And so he's got to chase us because he loves us. I said, so, Well, that wasn't God's chasing. And so here's what happens we, we don't do what's necessary. What's necessary is a redo, it's a do over, it, it, it's, a, it's a restart, it's a turning away and turning to. One of my favorite sayings from Pastor Chuck was the truly victorious Christian life is nothing but a series of of very long new beginnings. It's like we're being made new every day. We get to start over. We can choose to do a reset. We can take the things that are good and continue in them, but we can always move away from the things that are not okay with the Lord. That's just a simple little new beginning. You see, Jacob's experience at Bethel also involves some pain because Rachel died giving birth to Benjamin. And she calls him the son of my sorrow Benjamin, Benoni. even this divine title, the Lord of hosts uh, in chap- in verse five there in chapter 12, it kind of reminds us of, of what happened to, to Jacob as, as he met his brother Esau on the plains. it's like it, we're in two camps. We're in two places. God cared desperately about Esau and cared desperately about Jacob, and he was waiting for them to turn back to him. And man, their whole time, as as Jacob then goes to Laban and he wants to marry Rachel and he ends up with Leah, and that whole scene is like, man, if you don't give these things up, you're going to go down a hard road. And God doesn't want us to go down hard roads. So we need to take the easy path when the Lord gives it to us. Just let it go. Repent. Turn. And finally, we see some some reasons for discipline. And I I found five things. I think there's more than that, but five major ones. Notice from verse 7 to the end of the chapter. A cunning Canaanite. Deceitful scales are in his hand. He loves to oppress You see, Israel was famous for being shrewd. We might say they were great businessmen. They learned how to make a dollar no matter where they were. But the problem is they were deceitful. They had scales that were unbalanced. And furthermore, when they got an advantage over someone, they used it to oppress them. They were dishonest in business. It's amazing how many Christians I see that have a fish or a dove on their card or it says, you know, in Christ we trust on the bottom of their business card, but they do the very same things that unbelievers do in business. And they expect God to bless, and instead they get chastened. They wonder why their business doesn't succeed because God's not in it. You can't put a name on a card and change the character of a person. God's looking at the heart and he's saying, look, I want you to actually be like me. Don't claim to represent me unless you're going to be like me. Verse 8, and Ephraim said, surely I've become rich and I've found wealth for myself in all my labors. They shall find in me no iniquity that is sin. Now I want you to notice what the, this is so arrogant and prideful. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God is what we know about our character. There's none righteous, not one. The heart of man is deceitful, it's desperately wicked, and who can know it? And so when you run around saying, I'm sinless, you're basically lying. Now, maybe you believe that yourself. It's possible, I suppose. But the fact of the matter is you're not sinless, and you do have iniquity, and you are a mess. And you're not rich because you're awesome. If God gave you riches, it's because God's blessed you for some reason, and that reason is always others. Maybe it's your own family members. Maybe it's something that's in the future. Maybe it's missions. Maybe it's a church. Maybe you're supposed to build a hospital. You're, You're supposed to do something with what God gave you. It shows what's in your heart. But don't kid yourself into thinking that there's nothing wrong with you. Because every last one of us, if, if we really will stop for a moment and admit it, all of us have problems. We all have issues. Me personally, my issues have issues. And then their issues have other issues. It's like, it, it, it's endless. And I think it's a beautiful picture of how badly we need the grace of God in our lives. Verse 9, but I am the Lord your God, never since the land of Egypt I will make you again dwell in tents, as in the days of the appointed feast, for I have spoken by the prophets, and have multiplied visions, given symbols through the witness of the prophets. And though Gilead has idols, surely their vanity, for they sacrifice bulls at Gilgal, and indeed their altars, shall be heaps in the furrows of the field. And Jacob fled to the country of Syria, and Israel served for a spouse, And for a wife, he tended sheep. And by the prophet of the Lord, Israel was brought out of Egypt. And by the prophet, he was preserved. For Ephraim provoked him to anger most bitterly. And therefore, the Lord will leave the guilt of his bloodshed upon him and return his reproach upon him himself. You see that the picture here is that the children of Israel, and very often this applies to us as well, just simply won't hear the Lord. We don't don't want to hear God's voice. God was speaking through the prophets. God gave them multiple visions, it says, all kinds of symbols. Every time they moved, imagine you're with the children of Israel in the wilderness, and every time you move, you take down this magnificent tent, this white linen fence that goes around it, the brazen altar, the, the bronze laver and you, you take the candlestick and you take the table of showbread and you take the altar of incense and then you have the priest carrying the Ark of the Covenant with Moses' blessing of the Ten Commandments inside it and a pot containing some manna and Aaron's rod that budded in front of Pharaoh and this golden box that has on the top but two cherubim where the presence of the Lord normally can be found. And as they move this thing around and they get to the new place they're going to set up, you've got three of the 12 tribes that way to the north and three to the south and three to the west and three to the east. And they're set up saying, holiness is unto the Lord on the headband of the priest. That's like how much more of the voice of God did they need? And in our day and time, how much more of the voice of God do we need? You know, I'm stunned sometimes at the biblical ignorance of the church. It's like God is speaking. God has already told us what he thinks about something. Well, no, it doesn't mean that today. God changed his character. You know, it's okay if two men marry each other. No, it's not. God wiped out Sodom because of that. God brought this destruction on Gilead because of that. Well, you know, so it's okay if you just, you know, you don't really need to get married anymore. I mean, who cares about any of that stuff? I mean, we've advanced as a society. Well, God does. God can find human sexuality in marriage. So we're running around, well, you know, I don't really need to know what the Bible says about that. I just want to live my own life the way I want to live it. Well, I think I can drink strong drink. I can run out, I can go to bars and I can hang out and have my shots of brandy or whatever. 100% of the time, this book, the Bible, condemns strong drink. And yet we have people wandering around, well, you know, uh, we're a little different. We know things better. No. God's word still says what it says, it still means what it says, and God's character doesn't change. So he's not okay with something now that he was not okay with then. wouldn't listen to the voice of God. And subsequent to that, they would not obey the word. It's like God speaks the word to them. God tells them, don't do that. Go do this, be this, meet with me in the house of God at Bethel. Well, you know, maybe we can meet with you at the house of Baal. Rasheroth or Molech. For right, now, we're just gonna make up our own rules. They were brought out of bondage by the voice of God. And all of a sudden they're like, well, you know, eh, you know, we listen to God when we want to. You know, I'll go on Sunday every other month. Try and hear something from God. He'll sustain me. No, literally, God was speaking to them through the prophet continually. And that's the way God wants to do that. He wants to do that today, primarily through his word. You can just simply read it and be spoken to by God. It still says what it says. It still means what it says. And it still continues to say what it says. So you don't have to worry about it changing. The Lord, the Lord warns them so that they'll be humbled. And the last thing that we see, and this is so important in our day and time, is the role that anger and violence played in that society of Israel. They became more bitter and more angry and more hate-filled. They took more advantage of one another. They dishonored their their humanity by treating other people also made in the likeness of God in a worse way than they would want to be treated themselves. And so we wonder why we have racial tension. Well, when you treat someone who's made in the image of God, whose value is exactly the same as yours, differently because of the color of their skin, you are misrepresenting God. God's character resides in every last human being and it does not matter the color of their skin. Every human has value in God's eyes. It's a God thing. It's not a society thing. And so for the children of God, the reason that people get angry, the reason that people get violent, the reason that people turn to the arm of flesh is because they won't do what God's word says. And so to that end, Israel ends up getting God's discipline instead. The prophets of God for centuries had warned the people. But just as verse 10, they wouldn't listen. I'm saying, you won't listen. They turned away from the word instead of towards the word. They practiced idolatry. They did exactly what they weren't supposed to do. They were freed from idolatry. They were in a pagan land under this, this oppressive leadership of Pharaoh. They were forced into servitude. They get delivered from it. And they're like, well, you know, idolatry really wasn't that bad. Let's make a God after our own liking. And by the way, they did that as soon as they got into the promised land. They did that as soon as they got into the wilderness. Moses is up getting the Ten Commandments and Aaron and Jethro are down at the base of the mountain and people are, let's make a god. Great, up, we, up, out of the fire come a golden calf. We'll worship that. That's how lame we can be at times. When you turn from the word and you practice idolatry, you're setting yourself up for a good spanking. So know that. When you worship the world, you're setting yourself up for a spanking. When you walk in foolishness, you're setting yourself up. If you won't turn from it, if you keep going the wrong way, God's going to go, I love you, but here it comes because I love you. If you're His, You can count on the fact that God will discipline you. But he only does that when you won't receive his love. If you won't walk in that loving relationship, then you end up getting the discipline that God doesn't want to give you. God doesn't take any delight in having to spank his kids. In in that sense that we would say, well, I'd rather do this or this. He would rather walk with us in obedience and love and care and concern than have to give us a spanking so that we finally turn around and come back the direction we're supposed to go. And so as you mark up these two chapters and you you read through them on your own, if you are God's child and you ever knowingly turn away from the Lord, you know what you're going to get. From the Lord. Don't turn away in the first place. Don't go the wrong direction. Don't, don't move away from the Lord. Move towards the Lord, and then you won't get that discipline. Walk with him instead of against him. Would you join me in prayer? Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your grace, the beauty of your relationship with us, that you do love us, and so you will chase us if necessary. But we also thank you that you don't just arbitrarily pull out the the belt. Lord, you give us a lot of leeway to turn around and come back towards you and pray that those that maybe are in that place, Lord, where they know there's something going wrong in their life and they know why, they know what they're doing. Pray that they would return to you and be blessed because of it. Lord, help us to cling to your love and help us to not need your discipline. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening, and we hope you were encouraged by today's message. If you have any questions or just want to check us out, make sure to visit us at ccsouthbay.org. God bless you guys, and we'll see you next week.